0: chapter 11 of when william came by saki this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for further information or to volunteer please go to librivox.org reading by andy Minter when william came by saki chapter 11 the tea shop Yeovil wandered down Piccadilly that afternoon in a spirit of restlessness and expectancy. The long-awaited Aufklärung, dealing with the new law of military service, had not yet appeared. At any moment he might meet the horse-throated newsboys running along with their papers, announcing the special edition which would give the terms of the edict to the public. Every sound or movement that detached itself with isolated significance from the general whirr and scurry of the streets, seemed to Yeovil to herald the oncoming clamour and rush that he was looking for. But the long, endless succession of motors and buses and vans went by, hooting and grunting, and such newsboys as were to be seen hung about listlessly, bearing no more attractive bait on their posters than the announcement of an earthquake shock in Hungary, fear loss of life, The green park-end of Piccadilly was a changed, and in some respects a livelier thoroughfare than that which Yeovil remembered with affectionate regret. A great political club had migrated from its palatial home to a shrunken habitation in a less prosperous quarter. Its place was filled by the flamboyant frontage of the Hotel Constantinople. Gorgeous turkey carpets were spread over the wide entrance steps. And boys in Circassian and Anatolian costumes hung about the doors or dashed forth in unoriental haste to carry such messages as the telephone was unable to transmit. Picturesque sellers of Turkish delight, attar of roses, and brasswork coffee services squatted under the portico on terms of obvious good understanding with the hotel management. A few doors further down, a service club that had long been a Piccadilly landmark was a landmark still, as the home of the Army Aeronaut Club, and there was a constant coming and going of gay-hued uniforms—Saxon, Prussian, Bavarian, Hessian, and so forth—through its portals. The mastering of the air, and the creation of a scientific aerial war-fleet, second and none in the world, was an achievement of which the conquering race was pardonably proud and for which it had good reason to be duly thankful. Over the gateways was blazoned the badge of the club, an elephant, whale, and eagle, typifying the three armed forces of the State, by land and sea and air. The eagle bore in its beak a scroll with the proud legend, The last am I, but not the least. To the eastward of this gaily humming hive, The long-shuttered front of a deserted ducal mansion struck a note of protest and mourning, amid the noise and whirl and colour of a seemingly uncaring city. On the other side of the roadway, on the gravelled paths of the green park, small ragged children from the back streets of Westminster looked wistfully at the smooth, trim stretches of grass on which it was now forbidden in two languages to set foot. Only the pigeons, disregarding the changes of political geography, walked about as usual, wondering perhaps if they ever wondered at anything, at the sudden change in the distribution of park-humans. Yeovil turned his steps out of the hot sunlight into the shade of the Burlington Arcade, familiarly known to many of its newer frequenters as The Passage. Here the change that new conditions and requirements had wrought was more immediately noticeable than anywhere else in the West End. Most of the shops on the western side had been cleared away, and in their place had been installed an open-air café, converting the long alley into a sort of promenade tea-garden, flanked on one side by a line of haberdashers, perfumers, and jewellers' show-windows. The patrons of the café could sit at the little round tables, drinking their coffee and syrups and aperitifs and gazing, if they were so minded, at the pyjamas and cravats and Brazilian diamonds spread out for inspection before them. A string orchestra, hidden away somewhere in a gallery, was alternating grand opera with The Gondola Girl, and the latest gems of transatlantic melody. From around the tightly packed tables arose a babel of tongues, made up chiefly of German, a South American rendering of Spanish, and a North American rendering of English, with here and there the sharp, shaken-out staccato of Japanese. A sleepy-looking boy in a nondescript uniform was wandering to and fro among the customers, offering for sale the Matin, New York Herald, Berliner Tageblatt, and a host of crudely-coloured illustrated papers embodying the hard-worked wit of a world legion of comic artists. Yeovil hurried through the arcade, It was not here, in this atmosphere of staring alien eyes and jangling tongues, that he wanted to read the news of the Imperial Aufklärung. By a succession of byways he reached Hanover Square, and thence made his way into Oxford Street. There was no commotion of activity to be noticed yet among the newsboys. The posters still concerned themselves with the earthquake in Hungary, varied with references to the health of the King of Romania and a motor accident in South London. Yeovil wandered aimlessly along the street for a few dozen yards, and then turned down into the smoking-room of a cheap tea-shop, where he judged that the flourishing foreign element would be less conspicuously represented. Quiet-voiced, smooth-headed youths from neighbouring shops and wholesale houses sat drinking tea and munching pastry, some of them reading, others making a fitful rattle with dominoes on the marble-topped tables." A clean, wholesome smell of tea and coffee made itself felt through clouds of cigarette-smoke. Cleanliness and listlessness seemed to be the dominant notes of the place—a cleanliness that was commendable, and a listlessness that seemed unnatural and undesirable, where so much youth was gathered together for refreshment and recreation. Yeovil seated himself at a table already occupied by a young clergyman who was smoking a cigarette over the remains of a plateful of buttered toast. He had a keen, clever, hard-lined face—the face face of a man who, in an earlier stage of European history, might have been a warlike prior, awkward to tackle at the council-board, greatly to be avoided where blows were being exchanged. A pale, silent damsel drifted up to Yeovil, and took his order with an air of being mentally some hundreds of miles away, and utterly indifferent to the requirements of those whom she served. If she had brought calf's foot jelly instead of the pot of china tea he had asked for, Yeovil would hardly have been surprised. However, the tea duly arrived on the table, and the pale damsel scribbled a figure on a slip of paper, put it silently by the side of the teapot, and drifted silently away. Yeovil had seen the same sort of thing done on the musical comedy stage, and done rather differently. Uh, "'Can you tell me, sir, is the imperial announcement out yet?' asked the young clergyman, after a brief scrutiny of his neighbour. "'No, I have been waiting about for the last half-hour on the lookout for it,' said Yeovil. "'The special editions ought to be out now.' Then he added, "'I have only just lately come back from abroad. I know scarcely anything of London as it is now. You may imagine that a good deal of it is very strange to me. Your profession must take you a good deal among all classes of people.' i've seen something of what one can call the upper or at any rate the richer classes since i came back do tell me something about the poorer classes of the community how do they take the new order of things badly said the young cleric badly in more senses than one they are helpless and they are bitter bitter in the useless kind of way that produces no great resolutions they look round for someone to blame for what has happened They blame the politicians. They blame the leisured classes. In an indirect way, I believe they blame the church. Certainly their national disaster has not drawn them towards religion in any form. One thing you may be sure of, they do not blame themselves. No true Londoner ever admits that the fault lies at his door. "'No, I never!' is an exclamation that is on his lips from earliest childhood, whenever he is charged with anything blameworthy or punishable. That is why school discipline was ever a thing repugnant to the school board child and its parents. No school board scholar ever deserved punishment, however obvious the fault might seem to a disciplinarian. No, I never exonerated it as something that had not happened. Public schoolboys and private schoolboys of the upper and middle class had their fling and took their thrashings when they were found out as a piece of bad luck. But our Bert and our Sid. "'were of those for whom there is no condemnation. "'If they were punished, it was for faults that no, they never committed. "'Naturally, the grown-up generation of Burts and Sids, "'the voters and householders, do not realise, "'still less admit, that it was they who called the tune "'to which the politicians danced. "'They had to choose between the vote-mongers "'and the so-called scare-mongers, "'and their verdict was for the vote-mongers all the time. "'Now they're bitter.' "'They are being punished, and punishment is not a thing that they have been schooled to bear. "'The taxes that are falling on them are a grievous source of discontent, "'and the military service that will be imposed on them for the first time in their lives will be another. "'There is a more lovable side to their character under misfortune, though,' added the young clergyman. "'Deep down in their hearts there was a very real affection for the old dynasty.' future historians will perhaps be able to explain how and why the royal family of Great Britain captured the imaginations of its subjects in so genuine and lasting a fashion. Among the poorest and most matter-of-fact, for whom the name of no public man, politician or philanthropist stands out with any especial significance, the old queen and the dead king, the dethroned monarch and the young prince live in a sort of domestic pantheon. "'a recollection that is a proud and wistful personal possession, "'when so little remains to be proud of or to possess. "'There is no favour that I am so often asked for among my poorer parishioners "'as the gift of the picture of this or that member of the old dynasty. "'I have got all of them only except Princess Mary,' an old woman said to me last week, "'and she nearly cried with pleasure when I brought her an old bystander portrait "'that filled the gap in her collection.' and on Queen Alexandra's day they bring out and wear the faded wild rose-favours that they bought with their pennies in days gone by. "'The tragedy of the enactment that is about to enforce military service on these people is that it comes when they've no longer a country to fight for,' said Yeovil. The young clergyman gave an exclamation of bitter impatience. "'That is the cruel mockery of the whole thing!' every now and then in the course of my work i have come across lads who were really drifting to the bad through the good qualities in them a clean combative strain in their blood and a natural turn for adventure made the ordinary anaemic routine of shop or warehouse or factory almost unbearable for them what splendid little soldiers they would have made and how grandly the discipline of a military training would have steadied them in after-life when steadiness was wanted the only adventure that their surroundings offered them had been the adventure of practising mildly criminal misdeeds without getting landed in reformatories and prisons. Those of them that have not been successful in keeping clear of detection are walking round and round prison yards, experiencing the operation of a discipline that breaks and does not build. They were merry-hearted boys once, with nothing of the criminal or ne'er-do-well in their natures, and now— "'Have you ever seen a prison-yard with that walk round and round and round "'between grey walls under a blue sky?' Yeovil nodded. "'It's good enough for criminals and imbeciles,' said the parson. "'But think of it for those boys who might have been marching along to the tap of the drum "'with a laugh on their lips instead of hell in their hearts. "'I have had hell in my heart sometimes when I have come in touch with cases like those.' "'I suppose you're thinking that I'm a strange sort of parson.' "'I was just defining you in my mind,' said Yeovil, "'as a man of God, with an infinite tendency for little devils.' The clergyman flushed. "'Rather a fine epitaph to have on one's tombstone,' he said, "'especially if the tombstone were in some crowded city graveyard. "'I suppose I am a man of God, but I don't think I could be called a man of peace.' Looking into the strong young face, with its suggestion of a fighting prior of bygone days, more marked than ever, Yeovil mentally agreed that he could not. "'I have learnt one thing in life,' continued the young man, "'and that is peace is not for this world. Peace is what God gives us when he takes us into his rest. Beat your sword into a ploughshare if you like, but beat your enemy into smithereens first. A long-drawn cry, repeated again and again, detached itself from the throb and hoot and whir of the street traffic. "'Special! Military service! Special!' The young clergyman sprang up from his seat and went up the staircase in a succession of bounds, causing the domino-players and novelette-readers to look up for a moment in mild astonishment. In a few seconds he was back again, with a copy of an afternoon paper. "'The imperial prescript was set forth in heavy type.' in parallel columns of English and German. As the young man read, a deep burning flush spread over his face, then ebbed away into a chalky whiteness. He read the announcement to the end, and then handed the paper to Yeovil, and left without a word. Beneath the courtly politeness and benignant phraseology of the document ran a trenchant, searing irony. The British-born subjects of the Germanic crown inhabiting the islands of great britain and ireland had habituated themselves as a people to the disuse of arms and resolutely excluded military service and national training from their political system and daily life their judgment that they were unsuited as a race to bear arms and conform to military discipline was not to be set aside Their new overlord did not propose to do violence to their feelings and customs by requiring from them the personal military sacrifices and services which were rendered by his subjects German-born. The British subjects of the Crown were to remain a people consecrated to peaceful pursuits, to commerce and trade and husbandry. The defence of their coasts and shipping, and the maintenance of order and general safety, would be guaranteed by a garrison of German troops— with the cooperation of the imperial war fleet. German born subjects residing temporarily or permanently in the British Isles would come under the same laws respecting compulsory military service as their fellow subjects of German blood in the other parts of the empire, and special enactments would be drawn up to ensure that their interests did not suffer from a periodical withdrawing on training or other military calls. Necessarily a heavily differentiated scale of war taxation would fall on British taxpayers to provide for the upkeep of the garrison and to equalise the services and sacrifices rendered by the two branches of His Majesty's subjects. As military service was not henceforth open to any subject of British birth, no further necessity for any training or exercise of a military nature existed. Therefore, All rifle clubs, drill associations, cadet corps, and similar bodies were henceforth declared to be illegal. No weapons other than guns for specified sporting purposes, duly declared and registered and open to inspection when required, could be owned, purchased, or carried. The science of arms was to be eliminated altogether from the life of a people who had shown such marked repugnance to its study and practice." the cold irony of the measure struck home with the greater force because its nature was so utterly unexpected public anticipation had guessed at various forms of military service aggressively irksome or tactfully lightened as the case might be in any event certain to be bitterly unpopular and now there had come this contemptuous boon which had removed at one stroke the bogey of compulsory military service from the troubled imaginings of the british people and fastened on them the cruel distinction of being in actual fact what an enemy had called them in splenetic scorn long years ago, a nation of shopkeepers. Ay, ah, something even below that level, a race of shopkeepers who were no longer a nation. Yeovil crumpled the paper in his hand and went out into the sunlit street. A sudden roll of drums and crash of brass music filled the air. A company of Bavarian infantry went by. In all the pomp and circumstance of martial array, and the joyous swing of rapid rhythmic movement, the street echoed and throbbed in the Englishman's ears, with the exultant pulse of youth and mastery set to loud pagan music. A group of lads from the tea-shop clustered on the pavement and watched the troops go by, staring at a phase of life in which they had no share—the martial trappings, the swaggering joy of life, the comradeship of camp and barracks— the hard discipline of drill-yard and fatigue duty, the long sentry watchings, the trench digging, forced marches, wound, cold, hunger, makeshift hospitals, and the blood-wet laurels, these were not for them. Such things they might only guess at, or see on a cinema film darkly. They belonged to the civilian nation. The function of afternoon tea was still being languidly observed in the big drawing-room when Yeovil returned to Berkshire Street. Cicely was playing the part of hostess to a man of perhaps forty-one years of age, who looked slightly older from his palpable attempts to look very much younger. Percival Plasey was a plump, pale-faced, short-legged individual, with puffy cheeks, over-prominent nose, and thin, colourless hair. His mother, with nothing more than maternal prejudice to excuse her, had discovered some twenty-odd years ago that he was a well-favoured young man, and had easily imbued her son with the same opinion." The slipping away of years, and the natural transition of an unathletic boy into the podgy, unhealthy-looking man, did little to weaken the tradition. Plasi had never been able to relinquish the idea that a youthful charm and comeliness still centred in his person, and laboured daily at his toilet with the devotion that a hopelessly lost cause is so often able to inspire. He babbled incessantly about himself and the accessory futilities of his life, in short, neat, complacent sentences, and in a voice that Ronald Storr said reminded one of a fat bishop blessing a butter-making competition. While he babbled he kept his eyes fastened on his listeners, to observe the impression which his important little announcements and pronouncements were making. On the present occasion he was pattering forth a detailed description of the upholstery and fittings of his new music room. All the hangings violet de Palm. All the furniture rosewood. The only ornament in the room is a replica of the Mozart statue in Vienna. Nothing but Mozart is to be played in the room. Absolutely nothing but Mozart. You will get rather tired of that, won't you? Said Cicely, feeling that she was expected to comment on this tremendous announcement. One gets tired of everything. Said Plassey with a fat little sigh of resignation. I can't tell you how tired I am of Rubenstein. And one day I suppose I shall be tired of Mozart, and Violet de Palm and Rosewood. I never thought it possible that I could ever tire of jonquils. And now I simply won't have one in the house. Oh, the scene the other day, because someone brought some jonquils into the house. I'm afraid I was dreadfully rude, but I really couldn't help it. He could talk like this through a long summer day or long winter evening. Yeovil belonged to a race forbidden to bear arms. At the moment he would gladly have contented himself with the weapons with which nature had endowed him, if he might have kicked and pommeled the abhorrent specimen of male humanity whom he saw before him. Instead he broke into the conversation with an inspired flash of malicious untruthfulness. "'It is wonderful.' he observed carelessly, "'How popular that Viennese statue of Mozart has become! A friend who inspects county council art schools tell me you'll find a copy of it in every classroom you go into!' It was a poor substitute for physical violence, but it was all that civilization allowed him in the way of relieving his feelings. It had, moreover, the effect of making Plasey profoundly miserable. End of chapter 11